Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of England, episode 389, Newbury and New Sheets. Last time, we heard how in 1643 the nature of the war changed away from the scenario of two big armies slugging it out over the jewel that was London, or indeed the dung heap that was London, depending on your worldview. Instead, we talked about a series of regional conflicts now. We heard about how the Marquis of Newcastle drove south with the Queen and then returned to Yorkshire to deal with Parliament and the Fairfaxes with a heavy, possibly knockout blow at Edwalton Moor. In the southwest, two old friends have come to blows with first blood again to the Royalist army under Ralph Hopton that sent William back to London, conqueror no longer. The crucial port of Bristol fell into royal hands to join Chester. Charles's access by sea to Ireland was now secure, as long as his ships could avoid Warwick and the no longer quite so royal navy. Parliament's fortress at Gloucester was now threatened, and if that fell, all western and northern England would be in the king's hands. And I mean, he didn't even need to bother with Gloucester, probably. He could simply bypass it, march straight on London again. And meanwhile, despite all this bad news for Parliament, Essex sat dithering with his army at Tame in Oxfordshire, wondering if he dared attack the king at his new capital of Oxford, and mourned the death of one of the early leaders of the revolution, John Hampden. So the first six months of 1643 really were something of a belter for Charles. He felt tickety-boo top of the world. He could not have been happier that he'd sent the peace delegations from London and Edinburgh packing, fleas buzzing in their ears. He was looking forward to dictating terms to do through those malignant rebels. I invite you to close your eyes 
put Van Dyke's image of Charles into your mind, but a massive grin on his face, add the rubbing of hands. Henrietta Maria photobombing, fist-pumping behind, Prince Rupert stamping on the neck of the fallen peasant. In London, Parliament had panicked, and from the Lords, the leader of the emerging peace party, Warwick's brother the Earl of Holland, came forward with a rather abject proposal for a new peace, which the Commons, also mid-wobble, actually agreed to consider. This time, we're going to hear about how the world, which was beginning to look simple from Charles's closet after the string of victories, becomes sadly more nuanced. We're also going to hear about two absolutely pivotal events which will tweak the nipple of peace so hard that finding a compromise will become almost impossible. I speak of the cessation in Ireland and the solemn league and covenant in England, Wales and Scotland. I will explain in due course. But before we get to that, I am afraid I have a large digression to tell you about because the good people of England are also going to get a load of this. As discussed, pamphlets, cheap print was running wild. Censorship had completely broken down. And in Oxford, it was decided that a structured response to all of this was needed. The result was a new format, the news sheet or the news book, and it came out with a clarion call. The world hath long enough been abused with falsehoods. And there's a weekly cheat put out to nourish the abuse amongst the people and make them pay for their seducement. And that the world may see that the court is neither so barren of intelligence as it is conceived, nor the affairs thereof in so unprosperous a condition as these pamphlets make them. It is thought fit to let them truly understand the estate of things so that they may no longer pretend ignorance or be deceived with untruths, which being premised once and for all, we now go unto the business, wherein we shall proceed with all truth and candour. I am talking, ladies and gentlemen, about nothing less than the invention of journalism. After January 1643, the world will forever be trying to rediscover revolutionary England, and even the sun will never quite manage the vibe. The English public will be battered, good people battered and rolled in newsprint until they know not whether they are coming or going, what is up, what is down, what is north, east, south or west. They will have no hope of daily rest from the assault of propaganda, uh, sorry, news, fake or otherwise. The bit of text you've just heard was written in January 1643. It was announcing the all-new news sheet, the Mercurius Aulicus, the Court Mercury. It was probably written by a fellow of All Souls College, Oxford, John Birkenhead. So I know the image that conjures up in your mind. Ivory towers, dusty monographs, an earnest search for pearls of truth among the dung heap of existence. Well, think again. John Aubrey, he of brief lives, the endlessly fertile ground of contemporary quotes, he had a description of this academic who will become a voracious journalist. Exceedingly confident, witty, not very grateful to his benefactors, would lie damnably. He was of middling stature, great goggly eyes, not of sweet aspect. John Birkenhead did not mind putting it out there. These days, academia is, of course, Every bit as red in tooth and claw as it ever was, but the cut and thrust of said claws and teeth is often carefully hidden behind words like problematic, such a thoroughly versatile word. Back in the day, in the violence we have lost, they did not mess about so much. Just consider the arguments between the two saintly figures, Martin Luther and Thomas More, 
well, one saintly figure, potty-mouthed, does not even begin to describe the father of the English Renaissance. Seriously, there is not enough soap in the world to wash that mouth out. The story is that the Mercurius Aulicus was the brainchild of George Digby. Now look, George doesn't get a good press in these pages. He's the bloke that cooked up pretty much the worst plan in the history of political coups in the arrest of the five members. Oh, it'll be fine, King. No problem, they'll lap it up. I mean, there's a perennial discussion in life, outside of moral questions, obviously, about whether it's best to do the right thing or do the thing right, and Charles didn't do the thing right, but it almost certainly wasn't the right thing George had suggested. Am I making any sense? All I'm saying is that George Digby earns idiot badges like a good one, but when he suggested that what was needed now was a news sheet that communicated the news to the world with a royalist spin, both King supporters and not King supporters, he was on fire. And it was so and so Mercurius Aulicus was born. Now look, England in the civil wars doesn't invent journalism, I know that. I know we English like to pretend we invented everything, even the sandwich, for crying out loud, and I know we did not. That rather you might trace it back to Venice. The Italians are, of course, the real European geniuses. There had been single-sheet carantos for quite a while, but if I'm not mistaken, in England they seem to have been of a different quality, mainly international news, delivered very straight. The new sheet that will flower in England like a desert blooming in the spring rain are by no means always peddling fake news. They're not always sensationalist, but they are partial. They have a point of view. They are out to persuade. They are vibrant and people lap them up. And the old guard are outraged that said lapping of the people and chins wobble. Simon Jews, the Puritan diarist of Parliament, imbued with the historic significance and solemnity of the great institution of Parliament, will be horrified at the idea which spreads from Royalist Oxford and explodes in London as well. There are now, abiding in and about London, certain loose, beggarly scholars who did in alehouses invent speeches of members of the House and other passages supposed to be handed in or presented in this house. As a result, Simmons will give up and discuss and stop writing. The writers and printers who followed the star launched by the Mercurius Aulicus often came from a different background to the authors who had filled the world with academic debate books and pamphlets previously. They were more of the background of the new order, the likes of Catherine Chidley, but unlike Catherine, they would be in it now not just for the discovery of truth, they were in it for the game as well. Birkenhead's main writer on Aulicus was Peter Halin, a minor country gentleman, but an entire culture of writers will emerge. The greatest of them all, Marchmont Needham, whose name he said rhymed with freedom, obviously, was a publican's son from the George in Burford. He managed to get to Oxford, probably as a scholarship chorister, and then got himself a job as a lawyer's clerk, which gave him a bit of an edge. Well, the good folks in London, and indeed Parliament, weren't prepared to let the word of the king go unchallenged, and so new sheets spring up like mushrooms. First, Mercurius Civicus, the city Mercury. London's intelligencer, or truth impartially related, from thence to the whole kingdom, to prevent misinformation. Started up in June 1643, and... This is where Marchmont Needham decided that being a lawyer's clerk was a mugs game and he'd team up with a man called Thomas Audley, move into Grub Street, and the Mercurius Britannicus was born. Britannicus took it all a step further. These newsbooks were personal. 
Needham was much more vicious than the satirical Aulicus, which he accused of so full of lying and railing that I think he is afflicted by all the pimp. Don't quite know what that means, but it's not a compliment. Marchmont will have quite a career ahead of him, inventing and reinventing himself, ending up in jail. Then in 1647, he'll swap sides and get a job for the king, setting up the Mercurius Pragmaticus, enthusiastically smearing and mocking Parliament, with an openly Laudian and royalist viewpoint. As it said, communicating intelligence from all parts of the kingdoms, especially from Westminster and the headquarters. They were printed in Oxford, came out every week, sold for a penny a pop. If trouble got in the way and they missed a week, well, never mind. They just missed a number and people assumed they'd got lost on the road when they got the next one. They were smuggled into London, often carried by women who are less likely to be suspected or inspected, and if they couldn't get through, Local printers would just copy them and print them themselves. Obviously, no one was worrying about copyright. And if the Parliament men turned up, well, printers would just say, ah, it was a commission, it's not up to me to make a judgment about what I was printing. Later, Marchmont will write for Cromwell too, but he's always unwaveringly hostile to Presbyterianism, and apart from his royal period, be distinctly unsympathetic and irreverent towards the king in a way which was more than a bit shocking at the time when the king was, after all, supposed to be in direct communication with God and all that. Needham knew that the serious, heavy tomes of tightly argued prose would never do the job. His newsbooks were quarto sheets folded down to make a pamphlet, and he knew that each must be written in a jocular way, or else it will never be cried up. For those truths which the multitude regard not in a serious dress, being represented in popular, pleasing airs, make music to the common sense, and charm the fancy, which ever sways the sceptre in vulgar judgment much more than reason. The Civil War now had a new dimension, a new arm, a propaganda war to go alongside the physical war, and Grub Street spread like camp fever on the march, offering an opportunity for anyone with a gift for the written word, such as Alexander Aspinall, for example, a very poor ex-soldier, who explained that he had nothing but my pen to subsist on, and he accepted pretty much any commission to write on any subject adjacent or otherwise to what might have had a nodding acquaintance with the truth. I will stop now. But all these news sheets and woodcuts are a rich, rich resource for lovers of the history of the English Revolution. All digitised now, I think, but to a podcaster who is not part of a university library, frustratingly difficult to get your hands on. People of the time loved them, and were obsessed, and beguiled by them, and repelled and horrified by them too. But there were deeply informed and engaged people all over the country of what was going on, in the war, at court, who was in, who was out at Parliament, the Junto King Pym, the Presbyterians, the Friends of the Scots, the Enemies of the Scots, the Independents, the War Party, the Peace Party, blah. Popular politics has ridden into town, and here was a new culture where MPs were analysed, judged and held to account by public voice. Thomas Peyton was horrified that ordinary citizens had grown so wise, having received a diffusive knowledge from the dispersed house. Oh dear, okay, so what have I done? Gone off on one. Fun though. But let's get back to the story, so sorry. And pick up where we left off. Parliamentary panic, a string of defeats, a peace proposal from the Lords, passed to the Commons for consideration. 
Most firm royalists had left London by now, but many longed for the traditional centre of the kingdom, the court, to return. Whitehall was bereft of life and deserted. A palace without presence. Here are miseries and miseries and miseries, cried one pamphlet. Anyone could wander in and see the grass growing between the cobblestones and look at the departed glory a palace without a court. A ballad hit the streets, which rather echoes those Anglo-Saxon poems about the deserted Roman towns back in the ninth century. Deserted glory and all that. We see Whitehall with cobwebs hanging on the wall instead of silk and silver brave, which it formerly used to have, with rich perfume in every room, delightful to that princely train. Meanwhile, Parliament were not alone in their panic. There were plenty in London who now demanded peace. Trade was hurting, this division in society was hurting, all these new sheets with their acid and snark and snipe were hurting. Taxes, gosh, they stung. Fault lines in Parliament had not been resolved by the flight of Royalist MPs to Oxford because new ones had appeared. There were precious few believers in absolutism anymore in London, but there was a party that said the fighting must stop now and peace be achieved almost at any cost, and it was gaining strength. At their head in the Commons was Denzel Hollis, a man who bore the scars of the rebellion. He was supported by the more moderate peers in the Lords, the Earl of Holland, for example, who was the younger brother of junto leader Warwick. Even the Earl of Essex was showing signs of pressure, bit of a problem him being general of all Parliament's armies and all. So, inside the Commons in August, they could hear what London thought outside, but the messages were mixed. So, on the one hand, on Monday the 7th of August, the London Common Council debated and organised a petition to help them inside the Parliament make the right choice. It was a petition for war. The London Common Council was already up in arms about how the war was being prosecuted as it happens. They were deeply unhappy with Essex and his command of the army and the way he was prosecuting it. And there was rabble-rousing going on. So, a committee of general rising had moves afoot to raise a separate army to the parliamentary one. Pearman Parliament tried to reconcile this radical group by giving Waller command of the London militia. And one of the Committee of General Rising, Henry Martin, also an MP, bridged the two, spoke the language of radicalism, but also the language of Commonwealth to convince the Common Council they could work together with Parliament. Now Waller was in command. If there shall be a general and unanimous rising of the people, both in this city and in other parts of the kingdom, it will take down the partition wall betwixt the well-affected and the ill-affected. Certainly, I am of the, the opinion that either you must forth go all and meet the enemy's vassals with ropes around your neck, or all like men with swords in your hands. But the next day was not one for this warlike vibe of the Common Council. Instead... Westminster was crowded with hundreds of women, wearing white silk ribbons in their hats as symbols of peace, many carrying babies to, as they wrote, soften the hardest heart. The next day, though, there were no longer hundreds. There were thousands. At this time, they demanded to be heard. They knew what was going on in their house. They knew who their allies were. Possibly they'd worked and planned with them. So their petition was addressed specifically to the Earl of Holland, the physician that can restore this languishing nation. They banged on the gates. They demanded Pym and Stroh to be thrown into the Thames. Some shouted, Give us that dog, Pym! Soldiers were deployed. Butts of muskets were used. At least one shot was fired. A sempstress was killed. Many more injured. There was 
outraged that women should have the nerve to petition and march again, and the new sheet had a field day of misogyny. These women were for the most part whores, boards, oyster women, kitchen stuff women, beggar women, and the very scum of the suburbs, besides an abundance of Irish women. There we go, oyster women again. Huh. The Venetian ambassador's chin wobbled too, picking up one of them, a most deformed Medusa or Hecuba, with an old rusty sword by her side. A classical education does so help improve the quality of insults. In fact, all the insults simply reflected another example of outrage and horror at this world turned upside down. The petitioners, in fact, came from a whole range, and without doubt there were traders, artisans, merchant families figuring highly, and they consciously used their status as women to allow protest with a minimum of violence. While there was indeed a peace party inside the house, there was a war party too. For Pym, the outbreak of the Civil War represented the failure of the strategy he had followed from the start, a peaceful settlement to which the king was forced to accept. Nonetheless, now that it was war, neither he nor any of the junto were prepared to contemplate such an abject defeat. And behind Pym, the war party was hardening. Warwick, Manchester, Say and Seal and the Lords, Harry Vane the Younger and Arthur Hazelrig in the Commons. The debate was hard. The debate was long. The debate was close. But the proposal for peace was rejected. But by just seven votes... There was a casualty along the way. The man Charles had contemptuously dismissed as whoremaster and ugly rascal, Henry Martin. To the outrage of the mercurious Aulicus in Oxford, it was reported that Martin had declared in the Commons that it were better one family be destroyed than many. <sighs> well, there was a sucking of teeth, let me tell you, a sharp intake of breath, sucking the oxygen from the Commons at that. Now, Martin was notorious for his flamboyant wit in debate, which won him a whole load of fans, but this time he'd gone too far. Not quite sure that he'd actually said it, he was challenged by another member. Who? Which family? The king, said Martin. The king and his family should be destroyed. Well, no one was ready for that. No one whatsoever. Martin was immediately imprisoned, and he was banned from the House of Commons. He'd be released in a couple of weeks, but would be three years before he returned to the House, spending them fighting for Parliament in the Midlands until he returned in 1646. All of this was far too much for the Earl of Holland. He gathered his belongings and his dignity, forsook London, and took himself over the Chiltern Hills to Oxford, presented himself to Hyde at the court. Now, Hyde was ecstatic. This was exactly what they were looking for, the defection of a massively influential high-profile rebel leader. So, what did Charles do? Well, he royally botched it. Now, it must be said that only Hyde had the good sense to see what a golden opportunity this was. The rest of the court, confident now of victory, closed ranks against this former rebel. No way this guy was coming back. No way he was being reinstated in the household. He'd have to do his porridge and earn it. Charles therefore got himself embroiled in a tangle of protocol about who said what to whom first. By November, Holland had slunk back to London and the chance was missed. If this was the way the king welcomed defectors, well then, better not defect. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So the war must go on. As war resumed, both sides were looking for allies, the kings, to finish what he had started and bring those malignant rebels justice, parliament to survive. Pym and Vane were in deep discussions with the Scots Covenanters about an alliance, as Charles and Hamilton tried to derail the Scottish Convention completely, and Argyll and the Covenanters just kept right on going in frank defiance. Charles was now looking more hopefully to Ireland. In January, he had authorised Ormond to discuss terms with the Irish Confederate Association, but there was a problem. Among the Confederates, the hardline faction stood in the way, the religious faction, as it were. Their leading general, Owen Rue O'Neill, was fighting in Ulster, and he was a child of the Counter-Reformation, deeply aligned to Spain, supported by papal representatives who'd come over to Ireland to make sure that the Pope was reinstated in full authority over the heretics. But now, into our story, comes a town called Clonus. Clonus, I might say, was the home of the most exciting boxer I have ever seen. Not that I've seen that many, it must be said, but still, leave your traditional heroes of boxing and give me the Clonus Cyclone, Barry McGuigan. Just a personal thing. Anyway, in June, O'Neill was caught, and his army scattered by the Lagan Army, an army of Protestant colonists under a man called Robert Stewart. Now, O'Neill would recover, but the defeat at this time damaged his authority, and an agreement began to look on with the King and the Confederate Association. Meanwhile, where are we in England in the fightiness stakes? Well, the North is royalist, Newcastle is the boss, and up in Yorkshire, only Hull really holds out. And not only is that besieged, with the Fairfaxes bottled up in it, but now Charles's great pal Newcastle looks set fair to advance down the eastern side of the country and start cutting up the Eastern Association before he gets to London. Now, we'll talk about how that goes next time. For the moment, though, Pym and the Committee of Public Safety have spotted the danger and are planning to raise an army, if they can do so in time, and get the money. So, can you hold your breath and wait until next week for that one? Good on you. Because Western Midlands, that's where the big play was in 1643. Hopton had destroyed Waller, enabled the capture of Bristol. So, as you can imagine, the lad was promoted and everyone lauded and magnified his glorious name. Well, no, as it happens. Well done, old chap, said Charles. Now, command of your hood of Devon is actually going to be given to Prince Maurice of the Rhine, Rupert's little brother, because he's a prince and all, and you're, well, not. So, look after Bristol, there's a good chap. Rupert and I are off to defeat Parliament. Kididokli, bye! I'm being harsh, actually. Hopton was given a grander title and would get a command in the future in the South as a field marshal. But at this point, it was pretty cack-handed. He became a sort of deputy of Rupert left in Bristol. The king had essentially preferred family over achievement, and he caused a bit of bad blood. Though not with Hopton. He was way too nice. He didn't cut up rough, just did his duty. So, London or Gloucester, London or Gloucester, Viscount Falkland joined forces with Rupert on this one. The key to this war was to have and hold and tax territory. 
Take Gloucester, they urge. Take it quickly. Be utterly dominant in the West. It'll only take a couple of days, and then we can go on to London. Whether or not this was the right choice, who knows? Plenty of historians have said it was a disaster, because Essex and Parliament were squabbling, Pym was struggling to raise money, there was disarray and confusion in the camp, peace marches and all the rest of it. So, a big strike with Newcastle coming from the north, surely that would have been the thing. But look, ifs, buts and maybes. Falkland and Rupert seems to have had in mind charging up, taking Gloucester by storm, no quarter, plunder, move on, bish, bash, bosh, all sorted by the 10th of August, then London in time for the harvest moon. What actually happened was that Charles quite rightly went through the forms of demanding surrender. The local commander said, nope, not going to do that, and everyone settled down to a siege. But that had not been the plan. That's not quick. Two weeks later, they were still sitting there. True enough, the besieged weren't well supplied and were now getting desperate, but look, still. At last, by the 19th of August, Pym had worked the problems through and Essex was ready to leave with his army. He took with him, at the core of his army, the London-trained bands. The problem with the London-trained bands is that they believe their job is defending their bit of the country and as soon as they go outside their patch, they want to go back home. But nonetheless, they're off. And while we're at it, Essex has half-inched Philip Skippen, and Skippen has form. Everything seems a little safer when Skippen was on your side. We have a few contemporary snippets from the campaign coming up, including from one Sergeant Harry Foster, one of the Red Regiment of the London-trained bands. And things seem to start pretty well. Great shouting and triumph as Essex passed by to take a view of our regiments. It was a goodly and glorious sight to see the whole horse and foot together. In Gloucester, things are desperate. Morale is rock bottom. Last barrel of gunpowder. Everyone's eating cake because the bread has run out on the verge of surrender. And then on the 5th of September, they hear the booming of artillery. They see the Royalist army pulling back from the siege works. Essex had made it. Gloucester was relieved. What a relief. Doom and gloom in the royal team. But Charles was determined to get something out of this. And further west, Morris was sending back great news. Exeter had fallen. So, plan B version 2. Trap Essex in the West Country, block his route to London, give him a good thrashing, and then London will be ours anyway. So there's a nifty bit of manoeuvring feints and blinds. And the long and short of this is that the king wins the duel, and that when Essex wants to cross the River Kennet at Newbury, he finds his supply lines are cut and his way back to London is blocked because Charles has got to Newbury before him. By all accounts, Essex was in a bad way by this stage. It had been raining constantly. Essex's men had been on the move since the 19th of August and were knackered. The London train bands were missing their morning Danish and skinny lattes. The London train bands were missing their morning Danish and skinny lattes with an extra shop away from London life. Here's our Harry again. Our regiment stood in the open field all night, having neither bread nor water to refresh ourselves, having also marched the day before without sustenance. Neither durst we light any fire, though it was a very cold night. Now Essex gets a bad rap, often as an overcautious pudding-like commander, but on the evening of the 19th of September, he conceived a bit of action to relight the warrior fires in their collective bellies. At three o'clock the following morning, there's a silent reveille. They all surge forward, and Harry remembered them marching towards the enemy in the most cheerful and courageous spirits. 
And when morning breaks and John Byron, the guy who messed up at Edge Hill and had a habit of sacking South Oxfordshire towns, looks out from the camp, he seems round hill ahead of him, then chokes, because there were soldiers on it. Essex's soldiers were up there, looking a bit bushed, but crying happily, hey for Robin, just as they'd done at Turn and Green. So that's annoying. He knew they'd messed up by allowing this, as he wrote later in the post-mortem. Here another error was committed, and that a most gross and absurd one. They should have been up there already. That hill would have to be retaken now. The night before, there'd been a worried group of friends around one Lucius Carey, Viscount Falkland. Falkland was in a bad way, emotionally speaking. He was a sensitive and rather artistic soul, son of the poet Elizabeth Carey. He'd carried on that tradition, setting up a literary group with his wife Lettuce called the Great Chew Circle in his manner of Great Chew. A pretty place with a good pub, by the way. He had held himself responsible for the situation they were in, after all. He'd argued for the siege of Gloucester. Maybe they could now be negotiating with Parliament outside London had they not done that. Still, these low spirits were not new. His friends had seen a change in Falkland for some weeks now. Although one of those who had argued that Strafford must die, he was an ardent supporter of the old Church of England. He could not bear Presbyterian rhetoric, and he'd chosen, therefore, to ride with the king but he'd constantly supported efforts for a peaceful resolution throughout 1641 and 1642. But still, here they were. The conflict tore at all his instincts. His normal good temper had failed him, he'd become morose, sleep deserted him, and Clarendon remembered that he would passionately profess that the very agony of the war and the view of the calamities and desolation the kingdom did and must endure took his sleep from him. The morning before the coming fight, then, he asked for a clean shirt. Now, this seemed odd just before a dirty fight. His friends asked why. Well, he replied, he was weary of the times and foresaw much misery to his country and did believe he should be out of it ere night. That's not a good answer. They told him not to be an idiot. He was an administrator, an artistic type, not a warrior. Stay away from the battlefield. Next morning they heard Falkland had volunteered for a regiment in the front line. Ah. So, here we all are together at the First Battle of Newbury, 20th September, 1643, date check. Second of the big set-piece battles of the English Civil War, and the stakes are high. If Essex loses here, 1643 would have been a crashingly poor year and possibly a terminally poor year. If he loses here he can't get back to London and will probably be wiped out. The two armies facing each other were similar in size, about twelve to 13,000, nothing much to choose between them, Parliament a smidge bigger. So there we were at the hill. Prince Rupert came forward with 900 lifeguards to survey the scene ahead of him, and there would probably have been some superstitious mutterings as he did so amongst the parliamentary lines, because Rupert had a dog with him quite possibly a devil dog. Boy, for such was his name, was a rather unique white hunting poodle given to the boy Rupert by one Lord Arundel when he'd been incarcerated in the fortress at Lintz in the Thirty Years' War. That boy took Boy around with him wherever he went, even into battle, though carefully kept on a leash. 
he had become famous. So famous that apparently the Sultan of Istanbul had asked if someone could please find one for him. It was the ultimate warrior fashion accessory, essentially. And you can see that a devil dog would come in handy. Royalists had a lot of fun with Boy. And make no mistake, panicky roundheads muttered he was invulnerable to attack. He could catch bullets fired at Rupert in his mouth. Apparently he could sneak into camp, sniff around at the dispositions and numbers, and go back and tell the tale, half. I'd buy, I don't know, woofing in code or something. Royalist soldiers adopted Boy. He was set on the military career ladder, made mascot at the rank of Sergeant Major General. Meanwhile, Boy had also been carefully trained to cock his leg when anyone said John Pym. And you have to say that would have been fun. Boy, jump him, boy. Jump him. Anyway, what Rupert saw that morning was a landscape liberally covered with hedges, and the parliamentary foot had taken full advantage of all these thick, healthy, thick hedges. We had lined the hedges with musketeers, which they, perceiving, did not move towards our body, but only stood and faced us. The two armies faced each other, strung out each in a line roughly north to south. Essex's army was to the west, Charles's to the east. Charles would have the main attack from the royal left in the south, while the royalist centre and right held firm. The idea was that Wilmot in the south would lead a massively strong group of 3,000 horse supported with infantry brigades. They'd smash in Essex's right wing on the Newbury Wash Common, set them to flight, and then roll up the parliamentary forces along the line from south to north, and truth and justice would prevail over evil. But it was hard work as the infantry attacked the Parliament's positions with musket fire. Byron remembered, Upon this a confusion was heard among the foot, calling, Horse, horse! I went to view the ground which I found to be enclosed by a thick, quick hedge, and no passage into it, but by a narrow gap through which but one horse at a time could go, and that not without difficulty. The hedges were critical here. Over the next few hours, there was charge, there was countercharge in the south. While the battle was then joined in the centre, and by midday, Essex was under pressure. Skippen and Harry Foster's Red Band had been held in reserve, and they were called forward now to reinforce the line to prevent a collapse that threatened, and they then came under fire. The enemy cannon did play against the Red Regiment of the trained bands, and they did some execution amongst us at first, and were somewhat dreadful when men's bowels and brains flew in our faces. But blessed be, God gave us courage. Not quite sure what his accent is, by the way. Anyway, the two lines then came very close, without quite coming to push a pike, and yet each presented good targets for musket fire, despite the hedges in the way. Harry recalls a very hot fight with the enemy and did good execution and stood to it as bravely as ever men did. Red and blue bands joined together now to meet the next assault and gained the advantage of a small hill. The Royalists brought up guns again to batter them, followed by two regiments of the enemy's foot fought against us to gain this hill, but could not. Then two regiments of the enemy's horse came fiercely upon us and so surrounded us that we were forced to charge upon them in the front and rear and in the flanks, insomuch as we made a great slaughter among them and forced them to retreat. Nonetheless, at this point, Rupert intervened 
with five hundred horse and forced the squares of the bands off the hill and got among the Parliament's guns. Still the London bands held firm. Rupert's troopers began to be cut down with musket fire. Clarendon wrote of the train bands with admiration, a militia that proved to be not so soft after all. They behaved themselves with wonder and were in truth the preservation of the army that day. The day had been long now, getting on for twelve hours, and on a new assault from Royalist foot, the bands finally broke in search for cover amongst the hedges. Now this could be it, the moment when Essex's army broke, ran, and were slaughtered. But it was too late. Charles's army was exhausted, close to the end of their gunpowder, 6pm, getting dark. Charles was forced to call off the attack, though sporadic firing continued for a few hours more. Now, Harry Foster was a godly man, and he had scruples about singing the praises of Philip Skippen and the trained bands. If I should speak of anything in the praise and high commendation of these two regiments of the trained bands, I should rather obscure and darken the glory of that courage and valour that God gave unto them that day. But never mind, he forces himself. They stood like so many stakes against the shot of the cannon, quitting themselves like men of undaunted spirits, even our enemies themselves being our judges. That night, Charles withdrew back towards Newbury. The general view is that Charles had actually acquitted himself pretty well in this campaign in the warrior stakes, turning Essex around and making good, decisive tactical decisions in the battle itself. But in this now drawing back, maybe he missed a chance, but it was felt there was simply insufficient powder and will, and who are we to argue? Don't answer that. Harry, meanwhile, was on the scene of the carnage as the armies withdrew to their own camps. The next day I viewed the dead bodies. There lay about a hundred, stripped naked in the field where our two regiments stood in battle. This night the enemy conveyed away about thirty cartloads of maimed and dead men. Out in the field was a servant, searching for his master. The man he sought had been in Byron's cavalry, facing one of those thick hedges we'd been talking about. He'd seen a narrow gap, lined on both sides as it was, with parliamentarian musketeers, through which bullets spat. To attack such a gap would be suicide. So that is exactly what the man did. The result was predictable, a fatal bullet wound to the lower abdomen. The man was Lucius Carey, Viscount Falkland. The servant found his man, mangled beyond recognition, but with a birthmark on his neck that he'd seen many times in his life. He retrieved Falkland's remains. He was taken to be buried at the place he'd loved in life, at Great Chew. When Bulstrode Whitelock heard the news of the death of his enemy, he mourned, A gentleman of great parts, ingenuity and honour, courteous and just to all, a passionate promoter of all endeavours of peace betwixt the King and Parliament. Anyway, the path to London was clear for Essex now. It wasn't an easy journey home, Rupert's cavalry snapping at the army all the way along with skirmishes. Years later, a cobbler called George Robinson, who had fought there, filed a petition for a pension. He'd been shot in the leg, spent six months in hospital in Smithfield, having, as he wrote, three score splinters of bone of the leg at several times taken out to great pains. 
George, as a result, was permanently disabled, and his petition concludes, continually in intolerable pain, which he cannot hope to remedy during his life. Meanwhile, around Newbury, the passage of the armies had wrought chaos on the locals, from which it would take years to recover. The soldiers, having almost starved the people where they quarter, and a half-starved themselves. Still, the army got home to a hero's welcome and a celebration as they marched through the streets of London and the new sheets made hay. Many men were killed on both sides, but God be praised, we won the field of them. Actually, a bit like Edge Hill, it was no better than a score draw, but that's no reason not to declare victory. And if it had ever been really there, certainly the chance for a knock-up blow had now been missed by Charles. Still, the game of 1643 is not yet played out. Next week, We'll hear about the battle in the north and the east as Newcastle tries to drive Parliament from its last stronghold in Yorkshire and take the fight to the Eastern Association, clear another route to London. We'll hear how both Charles and Parliament find some friends in the Irish and Scots, both of which will come with a heavy price tag attached in the form of commitments. Next time, we'll hear about a new covenant, the Solemn League and Covenant to be precise, and we will lose another leading figure of the revolution. Until then, thank you very much, as always, for listening. I am eternally grateful. Thank you for your thoughts and reviews and comments. Lovely of you. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. It's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.